Strategy and Insider Exploring Future Trends and Their Impacts Welcome to the 15th episode of our Strategy and Insider podcast. I'm Thomas, your host of this podcast and a partner with Strategy and. After we've made our successful comeback from a little creative break in the last episode featuring Betul Susamis Unaran from the Zurose Group, I hope you are as excited as I am for any of the upcoming episodes. And without raising expectations too high, I can promise that we will continue to invite renowned and world-leading experts in the future of healthcare sphere. And if you like what you hear, We'll be tremendously happy if you subscribe to this podcast on the platform of your choice. And even more, um, if you leave a positive review comment on top of that. With our guest pipeline already filled up quite nicely, um, as mentioned, I do not want to wait any longer here to introduce my guest for today, who is not only one of the leading researchers in oncology, but also a friend of mine. That is why I'm more than happy to welcome you, Bernd Bodenmiller, um, to this podcast and look forward to discussing your perspective on the future of healthcare. Bernd is actually the founding director of the Department of Quantitative Biomedicine at the University of Zurich, as well as the Bodenmiller Lab. Bernd has recently been appointed a dual professor at the Department of Quantitative Biomedicine at the University of Zurich and at the Institute for Molecular Health Sciences at the Eidgenössische Technische Hochschule Zurich, or better known as ETH. Bernd studied biochemistry in Bayreuth and Zurich and obtained his PhD at the ETH Zurich in the group of the famous Rudi Ebersold, a pioneer in proteomics and also a friend of both of us. He then continued his academic career at Stanford University as a postdoc fellow and eventually returned to Zurich in 2012, becoming assistant professor at the University of Zurich. Since 2019, he's tenured and founded the Department of Quantitative Biomedicine. And in the same year, he was also awarded Switzerland's highest award for biochemistry, known as the prestigious Friedrich Miescher Award for his original thinking in his cancer research. Band actually is an avid scientific author and has published more than 40 papers within the last three years and is among the most highly cited researchers uh, known in this field. And his research includes the development of imaging mass cytometry, and we'll dig into that what that is, which is an approach that enables simultaneously imaging of over 40 proteins and transcripts in tumor tissues. These methods are applied to find out how cells in tumor ecosystems drive cancer development and to identify mechanisms for therapeutic targeting, an innovative and future-oriented approach in oncology. Currently, he's also working on top of all of that on making some of these methods available to patients via a spin-off company. So with all that said, Bernd, big thanks um, for coming on today's episode. I truly appreciate you take the time. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here with you today and to discuss about precision medicine. And Bernd, it couldn't be uh, a nicer comeback, if I'm quite honest, uh, to be back physically, face-to-face, -face, sitting in a room than with you here in Zurich on the very new uh, campus and, and the new building that you recently moved in um, and uh, even uh, on a sunny day. So big thanks for laying the foundation so nicely for today. Hey, in my introduction, I already tried to summarize the extensive but also complex research that you do. 
And let's imagine that my two kids, they're both nine and ten, um, were here today in today's recording. How would you explain to them and probably also to me and others here um, how what do you do um, in, in your daily research? So the first thing I would explain to your kids um, is that the human body consists of an extremely high number of building blocks, the so-called cells, and that these cells can have very specific functions. They make us see, smell, or they're cells of the immune system that fight off viruses or bacteria when we get sick. So once they have understood this, and I assume given the age they have, they already know this, um, I would then explain to them what cancer actually is and ultimately what happens in cancer is that those cells those building blocks get damaged and get out of control and because they're out of control they start to replicate and replicate and replicate and start to harm the host the patient the human body and at this point typically children ask oh so now how can you actually heal a patient how can you fight off cancer and there are many ways to do that one way is to cut out the tumor. However, then typically some tumor cells are still left. We can try to heal the tumor cells. That's very difficult. Or we can try to kill these tumor cells. Or we can try to push certain buttons that make them stop growing so that we have them under control. And now here's the challenge. From patient to patient to patient, what is damaged in these tumor cells and the buttons that we have to press are different. And this now brings us uh, to the research that my group is doing. So we develop technologies, algorithms that allow us to, for every patient, to see what's broken. Uh, what are the buttons that we should actually press to, to stop the growth of the tumor? And then ultimately our aim is to bring these methods and algorithms obviously to the clinics, uh, to the patient. And that is, uh, that is a very interesting point to to basically bring this from a patient to patient individual to a larger scale eventually so you can you can approach the mass of that and probably we dig into that later on but uh, thanks for for making it that easy to understand um, and I will make sure that my kids will listen to this episode <laughs> yeah? <laughs> they need to understand those building blocks and the the buttons to push and I mean your your academic record really suggest that you have both the skills, obviously, but also the passion. And I could hear that already now explaining this. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't have achieved so much and still only being a little over 40, if I can mention this. What do you think got you where you are today? Was it more your skills? Was it more your passion? Or was it something completely different? So to explain it, I will first tell you a little anecdote. So about 12 years ago, a pathologist took me into their department at a very big hospital. And you can see or you saw everywhere tumors in shelves, tumors being brought in from the many operation rooms that are in that hospital. There was a cut open bone where then samples were taken for pathology analysis. And then the pathologist also showed me how to actually evaluate the tumor and then write the report. And based on this, the oncologist um, will take treatment decisions. So what is happening there in the end can decide about life and death of the patients. But given what I've just told you about how individual each tumor is, how different the tumor is from patient to patient, it really struck me that the methods that are used to evaluate a tumor 
absolutely do not reflect the reality of what a tumor is and how we should treat it. And that and, and similar uh, experiences really pushed me to develop a vision on how we could bring this heterogeneity of tumors and how we could look at it and analyze it, how we could bring this back to the clinics. And so I think one key element is having this vision because then very often I can very quickly and early on see, oh, this is the direction we should go to before other people actually do so. Um, another element that comes with this vision um, is that I see that something might be possible, might be very challenging to do so, but I'm actually always quite optimistic that the human brain <laughs> can achieve even very difficult tasks or solve very difficult tasks. Um, and this then brings me also to the last element. I think I have a good feeling of whom to take into my research group. Mm -hmm. um, and the research group itself functions really nicely. People work together in a really productive way. And I think I also have um, a gift to bring the best out of each person in my group. Because in the end, I just have one brain, 24 hours and two hands. But I need a big team that actually is working on making this vision a reality. Yeah, and share, sharing that thought of the vision and the mission. And so clearly, if I summarize, it's the IQ, but also the EQ that brought you where you are today. And, and thanks for sharing the anecdote um, and, and making cancer hopefully better in future or, or the, the caring of cancer. And I mean, probably also deep diving a bit uh, in the light of, of COVID. As we know, cancer is still one of the most deadliest diseases worldwide. And, and um, th there is not really a cure for it yet. And that it was what makes also kind of the prevention of all those uh, patients and, and the cancer is even more uh, important. But many during the COVID pandemic uh, did not see a doctor during that time. And um, Given this, do you expect a bigger backlog now of cancer patients that will present themselves to GPs or oncologists eventually? Do you see an increasing number um, in the years to come? Because we have that backlog and we did not diagnose so so accurately and in quantitatives um, that we should do uh, in normal times. Absolutely. This is actually a well-known and described problem because the main issue... Um, that was caused by the COVID pandemic is, as you said, that people didn't go regularly uh, to their doctors. They didn't do uh, the regular health checks. And now what is happening is that many cancers or many cancers were not detected as early as they normally had been detected. And in cancer, the earlier you find a tumor, you detect a tumor, the higher the chances are for a good outcome. And now that we have this gap in early detection, many patients will be uh, diagnosed with a cancer at a later stage mm -hmm. and automatically they will have a poorer outcome. And um, at the same time, during the year of the pandemic, treatments often were not done as thoroughly as they could have. And so they actually um, models have or modeling has been done, for example, for the UK that estimates that over the next few years, mortality, for example, of breast cancer patients mm -hmm. will increase 5% up to some tumor types like head and neck cancer where they expect mortality to go up 15%. 15%. 15%. And directly linked to COVID um, and the underdiagnosing exactly. that, that happened. Due to uh, the wow. missed early diagnosis and due to the missed uh, care that normally would have gone into those patients. And I mean, that is the downside of uh, of the COVID pandemic. And there is 
many, many more uh, downsides, uh, of course, uh, than that. However, there is also the positive side of things that there was an incredibly fast development of vaccines uh, against the virus. And um, how did that, if at all, influence also cancer research? And, and what's your view also on the potential of the mRNA for cancer treatment, um, given that the technique is, is actually coming from cancer research, as we know, before it was then kind of used for corona uh, vaccination? So <clears throat> I think the positive impact um, of the fact that this mRNA vaccines were now successful for COVID will be enormous for the treatment of cancer patients. So the underlying idea of this mRNA vaccines is the following. Um, if a tumor develops, and I just mentioned to you before, these tumor cells get damages, And the result is that tumors, they produce certain building blocks, proteins, that are unique to the tumor. And you don't find them anywhere else in the body. And the idea now is that we can take those specific building blocks and we can tell the immune system to recognize these tumor-specific building blocks mm -hmm. and kill the tumor cell. And now the idea of these mRNA vaccines is the following, that a tumor is taken these tumor-specific building block, blocks are determined and then mRNAs are generated um, as a vaccine that's then injected into the patient and then the immune system starts to recognize these unique building blocks and therefore will find the, or recognize the tumor and can kill the tumor. And now why mRNA? Because it's extremely easy to produce, it's extremely versatile to produce um, and it, in the end the hope was that it will be cheap to produce. Mm -hmm. Now, due to the pandemic, all the resources and most of this pipeline has been very quickly being developed to uh, generate billions and billions of COVID uh, vaccines. But eventually, pandemic will be over, but all the resources that have been built will still be available. So the underlying idea to make this personalized cancer vaccines will be greatly accelerated now with the infrastructure that has been built. And on top, people realize that it can work. So there's a lot of funding now also going in the research in that field. And especially for those cancer types where you find many of these unique building blocks that you can target, I foresee the next five to 10 years uh, a really broad impact, so positive impact for cancer patients. So that means given the infrastructure is there yeah, and, and given that kind of the knowledge around mRNA vaccines and the safety around it and also the logistics around it um, have been now really understood better than ever. Um, we have kind of a window of real opportunity here also for other non-COVID diseases that can be benefiting from mRNA. That's what I'm absolutely hearing into this, right? Absolutely. You, you nicely summarized what I've just said. <laughs> <laughs> This is super helpful to understand um, and I'll, I'll relate back later on uh, most probably um, also what kind of the outlook for cancer per se is, but it uh, it's it's sending positive signals already. But probably coming a, a bit first to your research team also, because what you're doing is that you're working on solutions that are applied in precision medicine um, using, uh, for instance, mass cytometry imaging that helps better determine the properties of cells, as you said before, the building blocks. Um, and as promising as this approach certainly is, it seems that 
uh, in oncology, this is an avant-garde field for precision medicine, but the practice is currently neither being used very widely within oncology, nor for most uh, other diseases. And uh, my question is then, while it is still in its infancy with very much uh, potential to be leveraged, what is your view on the wider use of precision medicine and, and those approaches within and beyond oncology? So ultimately, I think precision medicine in oncology is an absolute necessity mm -hmm. based on what I explained to you before. The heterogeneity to be understood and... Yeah. Exactly. So um, if you want to have the best possible outcome for every patient, we need to analyze each tumor individually and decide on the best possible treatment for every patient. So while this has not been broadly implemented yet, and you called it an, an avant-garde uh, approach, is that still many steps need to be solved so that it can be used routinely in a clinical setting. So first, there are still... Um, scientific challenges. We still have to work which technologies are most informative um, and what algorithms should we actually employ and we need to train them then to make also the, the predictions. Then there are also um, challenges in regards to the regulatory requirements to work in the clinics. For example, how do you show for precision medicine treatments where each patient might get a different treatment? that this is actually the best way to treat a patient. Because yeah. classically, you have a clinical study, two arms, hundreds of patients get the, do not, the others do get one treatment. And so it needs new innovative ways to evaluate whether or not such an approach is sound. And yeah. only then, for example, health insurers will agree to pay for such treatments. And so there are many things in the current healthcare system that first have to adapt to the whole approach of precision medicine. In addition to the scientific work that still needs to be done. And ultimately, it will also be important that the oncologists will be trained um, for precision medicine because already now there are certain genomic tests that provide a lot of information for an oncologist. But in the end, the oncologist needs to look at the data, he needs to interpret it, he needs to look into uh, many publications on then making the best choice for the patient and the treatment and eventually there will be algorithms to support that uh, but at least in the moment we do not yet have the data bases to mm. train an algorithm that makes this best prediction and what i'm also hearing there is that um, while research is and that's the very nature of research is jumping always ahead of the curve yeah? and, mm -hmm. and trying to find the next edge after the next edge um, what I'm also hearing is that there is a healthcare system that is socialized as it is, as it is socialized and trained as it is trained and incentivized as it is incentivized. Um, what I'm also hearing is possibilities will be enormous. However, the system, the doctors need to be trained. The payers need to be brought on board what they're actually paying for. Regulators need to be also informed what they are regulating for and that regulation is not a one-size-fits-all anymore, right. but it needs to also evolve. Where do you see our path on taking the whole system yeah, uh, with that on, on the journey? I mean, what you nicely pointed out, it's all the players in the healthcare system that need to adapt to the precision medicine approach. And what obviously will not work is to say that's how it has to be done and yeah. how everyone <laughs> has to follow. Um, how typically things work is to choose one or few examples um, where one can truly show impact using this approach. 
and trying to make this a reality within the current system. Um, and once we have this light tower or light towers that show that it can have a broad impact, then step by step other people will be interested. Um, health insurers, if they see a financial benefit of having the patients treated the best way um, and ultimately this will lower the cost for them and for society overall, then of course everyone will follow and go in the same direction and the system will adapt to that. But it means that it needs to work better than what is currently yeah. done in clinical practice. So lead by example and showing the value it brings yeah, for individual um, stakeholders but also as a society as such. Mm -hmm. yeah? um, and um, I I can only imagine. So if you if you measure a patient's DNA, its RNA, its proteins, its microbiomes, and, and even sometimes lifestyle data, uh, you're measuring and, and lumping that together, combining them, um, and, and then kind of trying to make decisions based on that. How can you detect actually signals from noise? And uh, meaning how can you manage the complexity um, uh, at the one hand, but also leverage the, 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 the great opportunities that lie into the combination of those data points? Mm -hmm. So if you talk about potential noise, um, this can be fairly well controlled. Um, given a biomedical question, mm -hmm. um, you have to assemble a proper cohort, the proper controls, <coughs> the proper control cohorts. Also, depending on how you do your measurements, again, you need many controls. Then also when you do the computational analysis, when you want to show the relationship between the molecular measurements that you have made with the clinical data, there are also ways to control on that level what might be noise or that will at least tell you how certain you can be about certain associations. So on this side, I feel um, we, we know what we have to do. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you talk about challenges and opportunities, um, obviously a challenge is that if we have this multi-layer data, DNA, RNA, protein, etc., this in the moment only a very small part of the data that we can actually interpret. Because you, you, you don't know the rest or why, why is that? So we do know the rest. We do know th what the proteins are. Uh -huh. um, but then, for example, we do not know what they actually do in a tumor or okay. why they might support a tumor. Mm -hmm. um, so we generate this imaging data now with often over 1,000 patients. And then we find that certain groups of cells show a strong relationship to poor outcome. Mm -hmm. So we know what these cells are, but we do not know, for example, what are these cells actually doing or how might they contribute to the poor outcome because correlation is not causation. It might just be an association, but mechanistically, we don't know. So then additional research is, is necessary uh, to, to build this understanding. But then I also think there are lots of opportunities of having this multiple layers of data. Mm -hmm. I, it helps to find actually those buttons that we need to press um, on how to best to treat a, a patient. It also is helpful, for example, for an oncologist. If he has to take a treatment decision that's outside of the standard guidelines, if he sees that different technologies give you the same recommendation, that is also a very important thing to know for an oncologist to then take actually the treatment decision. And, and ultimately, also having these different types of data, and I'm coming back to what I just said before, can help us to understand the underlying biology. And ultimately, 
the basic idea of precision medicine is to understand what mechanistically is wrong in a tumor cell mm. and based on that provide the best treatment. And kind of bringing that in my head together, um, you you have that enormous set of data um, uh, coming from different sources, um, from different diagnostics and, and data sources. Um, you, you, combine, you combine that, do research on it, you, you are recognizing certain patterns in it and that are associated with, I don't know, uh, behavior of the patient or response to a drug. In essence, it is super complex. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And then this is kind of funneled, that information to a doctor uh, or a group of doctors and a group of uh, knowledgeable people that need, however, that in a very condensed manner and a very digestible manner so they can make a decision mm -hmm. within, I don't know, be it a couple of minutes, probably half an hour, but surely no longer, right? Because otherwise we're, we're missing out the next patient. Right. How can you manage that complexity and also the knowledge of those people um, because they, they can't cope with, I don't know, the, the 15,000 proteins. They can't, right? They, they don't know. They, they only know a fraction of the fraction, presumably, of those. How do you manage that and how, how can this be overcome? Because this could also be a rate-limiting factor to making better decisions for patients. Absolutely. And I think there are two elements to it. Uh, one is the data that we need to generate to, in the end, make very concrete treatment mm -hmm. recommendations. Because what we eventually need um, is a very high number of patients for which we have measured the molecular profiles, for which we know then which treatments they received based on these profiles, and we need to know over time what was the outcome of the patient. If we have such data sets, then we can train an algorithm mm -hmm. that based on the profile will make very concrete predictions on how to best treat a patient. Mm -hmm. So that is one key element. And a challenge of precision medicine is that in the moment, we do not yet have these types of data because typically treatments are done according to the standard guidelines. Um, the second element I mentioned before is that oncologists need to be trained not only to uh, be able to interpret a few standard markers, but to be able to interpret this much bigger type or a list of um, markers and, and treatments that we suggest to them. Because still, the oncologist is needed to put this into the context of yeah. how is the patient doing, other information he receives from different analysis. So it needs training, especially also on the oncologist side. So it all starts with um, high quality different data at size uh, that needs to be generated. Mm -hmm. Once you have that, it's an enormous complex, call it lake, whatever, of data that you then uh, try to identify the patterns uh, mm -hmm. that are associated with X, Y, and Z. And then based on that coming to concrete, simpler, uh, more simplistic decision-making that can, however, be handled and and, and, and done in clinicians. Uh, in exactly. Settings. And if such... Um, uh, This would also enable, if everything, then um, the molecular profiles, the predictions that are made, the outcome, also if we have the means to connect this continuously, mm -hmm. if always everything went back into the same database. A learning cycle. Exactly. Then we could also develop um, a self-learning, um, we could call it health or prediction system mm -hmm. that continuously gets better with the more patients actually get treated.
So different data sets, different sources um, means also different contributors. And I know that uh, you are also having several projects where you are collaborating with other clinicians, other researchers, but also pharma companies. Mm -hmm. How important uh, do you consider those kind of ecosystem type approaches for your work, but also for the development of our future healthcare system as such? So I think these interactions are really essential because, uh, for example, it teaches scientists what it means to bring their research actually into the clinical setting mm -hmm. and also what it means for pharma companies to bring a drug into the clinical setting. It also helps the clinicians to understand what scientists can actually deliver mm -hmm. and what because before you said we are ahead of the curve um, and then they realize indeed scientists can do things they've never thought about that they're already yeah. possible. And there's certainly also learning on the side of the pharma industry. I think it's extremely positive. And also um, the projects that we have ongoing with those partners, they enable projects that otherwise would simply not be possible. Mm -hmm. um, it also spurs many more collaborations um, in between the different partners. But it also, now talking about the research of my group, it really taught me what it means to bring the work that we are doing into the clinical setting and mm -hmm. what a long way it actually is to mm -hmm. do this in to bring this into clinical routine what a tough way it will be yeah so and, and you you're talking already kind of challenges that that are emerging from that but also thoughts or, or learnings from it right mm -hmm. uh, when you consider those ecosystem projects what are i mean you talked about the benefits of it mm -hmm. but what are key challenges that you are seeing there because as a researcher you are free yeah? mm -hmm. you're you're free to to think and you're free to research but there is others having constraints in clinicians yeah so they, they have clinical decision making now they can't wait three months right. for the result and, and unless then the, the, the patient is dead by now mm -hmm. uh, probably um, uh, pharma companies do have also budget constraints and shareholder constraints mm -hmm. where do you see kind of the The, the biggest challenges that you're that you're experiencing in those ecosystem type projects. I think you already mentioned some of the key challenges. At the same time, these provided us the key learnings. Okay. Uh, because if it's about how fast you have to be to provide a report to a mm -hmm. patient, it's typically two weeks or faster. Yep. So we have to adapt to enable this or the regulatory environments on when is a essay actually valid in the clinical setting. These are challenges, but great advantages. And what I experienced personally is that in those large ecosystems, there are many different uh, organizations. They have their own interests, of course. And to align those interests, that is a lot of effort. It needs mm. a lot of talking with all of the people that are involved. And it also needs a continuous exchange of thoughts, of aims, uh, to keep this whole thing running in an efficient way. And another key challenge, as you mentioned, Uh, is certainly the resources that are necessary because this type of research on the clinical side, on the pharma side, on on the academic side is very expensive. Yeah. And that is certainly also another rate limiting factor for this type of ecosystems. And uh, while we have been talking now about more the traditional side of, of healthcare players, mm -hmm. there is obviously the newer kids on the block uh, mm -hmm. talking about uh, the tech firms, but more concretely um, taking, for instance, DeepMind with their AlphaFold uh, technology that are able to predict 
very accurately by now, uh, as already proven or recently proven, um, in a very precise manner how proteins are folding. Yeah? Mm. Um, things like Apple now collaborating also with the UCLA and Biogen, uh, trying to identify markers for early onsets in, in dementia, depression and others. I mean, they are really pushing into that field and uh, with with good intention and, 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 and great hope there. But certainly they need to also um, generate further insights on the ever-growing data sets that they are also sitting on at some point and are doing so already. Um, how many requests do you get from these type of, of players to collaborate? And uh, are, are they also hunting for your top researchers in, in your groups? So we have many interactions more in the direction of technology companies that mm -hmm. build tools that then can be used in a clinical setting. Mm -hmm. um, so there we have many collaborations. Now for the data-driven companies, um, I think they can already now have an uh, impact in the clinical setting given the data that's, that's available. Mm -hmm. um, of course, we all know the data in hospitals is very unstructured, um, so somebody needs to curate that. But if this was available with the capabilities they have, I think there are certain clear-cut questions they can immediately address. But now, that's the key point that I made before. In order for these algorithms, uh, you mentioned DeepMind. Mm -hmm. um, that's a neural network that was trained to predict the 3D structures. That works so well because there was a gigantic data set available of 3D structures of proteins that scientists have generated mm -hmm. with other means. And if you have such really big data sets, then you can train such a neural network. But you always need, for example, for the clinical setting, you need the input that might be mole molecular data, that might be health data that you have from your watch, and you need outcome. Mm -hmm. And when you have both in high numbers, then you can very well train such a neural network. So if you talk about precision medicine, as I mentioned before, we do not have yet this outcome data We, we start to have these molecular profiles of many patients, but we are still missing the many different treatments that might be then uh, brought to those patients and the outcome of that. And so although those companies uh, have incredibly good people and incredible capabilities, this big data set to then make those predictions is simply not available yet. So unlocking the potential of precision medicine in oncology and elsewhere means we need to invest into generating those data sets mm -hmm. um, uh, along the lines of DNA, RNA, protein and, and so on, the multi-omics. Um, it requires to um, digitize uh, EHR records and to structure them better, to mm -hmm. link outcomes to um, kind of diagnostic data and to then be able to train that neural network to, to come mm -hmm. to eventually a better decision making. And, and this is what's unlocking the potential. Exactly. And so the way I see the development of precision medicine is that now we have to go through like, like a mountain. We now have to go up the hill mm -hmm. where a lot of investment will be necessary to generate the data that ultimately brings us down the hill where then algorithms will help us um, with the best possible treatment predictions. And for example, the Netherlands Kanz Institute, they set up an incredibly innovative trial strategy where they look at the uh, genomic features of a patient and then they do some groupings of the patients based on these genomic features and then they open up, uh, you could call it micro trials. And so they match a molecular pattern mm -hmm. 
with a drug and then they put in up to six patients into this micro trial. Okay. And then if they see that one of the patient benefited, then they expand the trial to more people. Um, and so wow. th this way they go very quickly to, through lots of combinations. And that is, I think, for, for example, one good way to generate the data that we actually need. And th those micro trials, are they specific to the Dutch system or is that repeated elsewhere? Do you know or are there any plans? Because it, it sounds simple and logical to start with N equaling, I don't know, one to six and, and see what happens, um, especially in those diseases where you see progress quickly, obviously. So every healthcare system or every country has a unique healthcare system. Absolutely. And so um, certainly in other places, similar trials are being established and mm. developed. Now, what makes this possible in the Netherlands is they found an agreement with the health insurers that if there's a certain fraction of success uh, or positive mm -hmm. outcome, the health insurers take over the cost oh, of all okay. of these treatments. Yeah, yeah. And so this takes away one of the big um, hurdles that we mentioned before is a lot of money is needed to run such trials because the drugs are incredibly expensive, the molecular measurements are expensive um, and that is what I call we have to find a way up the, the mountain mm -hmm. to eventually have the data to and come down the other side. I mean, in, in my head you generated uh, 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 the thinking now that first we need to um, load up the complexity, yeah, uh, cut through the complexity to, mm -hmm. to be simple again in the end, and uh, that, that makes it scalable. Uh, but there is a way to go. Yeah? There's a way to go, and we can still separate this in two groups. One is the what you can call the true precision medicine. Mm -hmm. But what we can do already now is given existing treatments helping to improve who or which patients actually receive the treatment. And this can be done retrospectively, mm -hmm. analyzing large patient cohorts where we know about the treatment and the outcome. <clears throat> Then we can help to find markers that tell you or the oncologist, these patients should receive the treatment or for those patients, it's actually not necessary. So, so this is something more immediate that we can mm -hmm. do, but that is more stratified medicine yeah. and not truly precision medicine. And, and that would also mean that uh, existing drugs um, already on the market or in pipelines and development mm -hmm. um, can be combined, can be dosed differently and in different ways um, uh, and given to patients um, rather than innovating new drug patterns and new, uh, new drugable targets and new um, um, APIs. Um, is, is this more the near term that you're understanding and stratifying the patient and linking them better to existing medications and new drug-drug combinations potentially that this is the more near-term kind of precision medicine outcome. Exactly. All that I've referred to so far is using existing drugs mm -hmm. or those that soon um, will make it to market. Will, will make it mm -hmm. to market. Because if you talk about uh, drugs against new targets, um, we all know that takes a long time. But the other way around, in the moment, There are, I think, nearly 700 different drug targets um, for, for which there are drugs being developed. And the number of um, targeted drugs that currently are approved by the FDA, these numbers are very high mm -hmm. and, and they are supposed to go higher over the next years. So, so the problem for the oncologist on how to match a patient with all of these many different drugs that are already available and that over the next years will become available will only become more difficult. And again, 
the only way forward is precision medicine. And you know, the overarching umbrella of, of the podcast series is about um, the future of healthcare that is mainly characterized by, by four elements, uh, talking about digitization, prevention, personalization, mm -hmm. uh, but also um, people-centricity. In, in which of those areas do you see the biggest potential specifically for cancer treatment currently and in the future? So in prevention, there's always a lot of potential because it's estimated, I think, that about 40% of tumors could be prevented mm -hmm. uh, by lifestyle and environmental changes. For example, if pe people didn't smoke anymore, mm -hmm. drank only little alcohol, always protect themselves from direct sunlight, um, avoid some uh, hazards at workplaces better, um, always get vaccinated because some viruses ca can cause also cancer. So if all of this would be thoroughly being taken care of, already there would be a reduction of 40%. That's an estimate. However, now of the points that you mentioned clearly, um, and I will not expand on that further, personalization yeah. is the key element. And in order to personalize, we need to digitize since we need the data of the patients and the outcome to move forward. And we haven't gone yet into that precision medicine in the end, the way I described it is fairly narrow, focused just on the tumor and treatment. Mm -hmm. But of course, if you also think about prevention, there's like the history of a patient um, that in, in the end should also go into such models because the history of a patient, previous diseases might also predict how a patient might respond into a given treatment, um, etc. So, but <laughs> that, that's a problem beyond <laughs> what I dare to think about and tackle. <laughs> yeah, oh, you're young enough to also take on this one then, yeah? <laughs> so this episode actually um, closes somewhat the loop to the very first episode when I met with uh, Andreas Vicky, who is a professor also here in Zurich, um, another renowned oncologist and also friend of ours. Um, I also asked him at that time a bit more provocatively if cancer would be curable in the future. And with him being optimistic and stating that there is good chances for a cure at some point in future, would you agree with that? And, and when do you think this will be happening uh, in future? And I know you talked about prevention already, that mm -hmm. we can take out that more or less 40% give and take um, by, by living differently. But do you think we, we will fight down cancer at some point? So you started the podcast talking about your children. Yeah. And I believe for our children, cancer will not be a big burden anymore. And okay. either when they become old, cancer will be curable or it will become akin to a chronic disease. Mm -hmm. And of course, there might be still some types of cancer that are uncurable, but But I'm very optimistic that until they are old, uh, cancer is, is very well uh, controlled. Because like the f over the last 40 years, um, the five-year survival of cancer went from 50 to 70 percent. Now, if in the next 40 years we manage to go from 70 to 90 percent, we are already very close. Mm -hmm. However, I believe that with all the scientific findings and innovations that were made over the last 20 years, and so many of those are only now entering Uh, the clinical practice, like the mRNA vaccines, uh, uh, cellular therapies, there are so many innovative treatments only now becoming available. I, I think um, our children can be extremely optimistic. I don't believe that there will be a golden bullet that mm -hmm. solves cancer, 
but step by step we will we will find solutions to this disease and fast forward from here in 10 years give or take what are the most pressing challenges you personally would like to have solved with your research until then and where do you see hence the greatest potential so what i really hope what we will achieve in the next 10 years is that some of the technologies and algorithms that we're using are used for the benefit of patients in, in clinical routine. That is something we're really working towards uh, to achieve that. Uh, but that's more the practical implementation and to develop those tools that they can be used clinically. Mm -hmm. Now, on a scientific perspective, I would hope that we have generated molecular profiles of hundreds of thousands, for example, of tumors, where we have also then perhaps generated ex vivo, the drug response data, mm -hmm. so that we can train algorithms to make predictions on how based on the heterogeneity of a tumor and the cells that are there and how they interact, how that might predict the best possible treatment. What a great closing, Bernd. And I, I really thank you for a very vivid and rich discussion and, and truly enjoyed it. Um, your, your passion and your vision um, and also the hope uh, that you gave for many people, um, probably not for each and everyone now, but uh, for, 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 for our kids and, and, and generations to come, that cancer can be, can be fought at some point. And um, yeah, really thank you for all the insights, for, for having us here in Zurich in your newly built lab. And this is um, clearly something that I would love to see now, yeah, um, to uh, <laughs> get a tour around your new uh, lab and, and, and uh, yeah, have a chat there and also uh, go back to my roots a bit, yeah, where it all started also for me in research. So thanks again, uh, really enjoyed it and stay safe. And thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed the discussion and I'm looking forward to show you our new labs. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so thanks everyone for listening in today's discussion with Band. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And personally, I already look forward to the next episode where I'm going to interview and talk with the head of strategy of a big pharma corporate talking about the perspective um, on their business model and the future of health in the light of uh, the post-COVID-19 duration. So with that said, all the best to everyone out there. Stay safe and also stay tuned. Take care and bye-bye. Strategy and strategy made real.